Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Time to check in with Bloomberg Opinion. We're joined by opinion columnist John Authors. John is a senior editor for Bloomberg Markets, joining us here on our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So, John, we need an update on Brexit. A lot of moving pieces over the last 24 hours. Yes. Can you give us kind of just the latest lay of the land and where are we right now? The latest leg of the land, we can assume that, uh, that the plan that Boris Johnson was putting into place, that he would basically frighten everybody into letting him have a no-deal Brexit is dead. Doesn't necessarily mean that it won't happen some other way, but that strategy has been decisively defeated. The question now is whether we actually have another general election and what point that happens. Now, the critical thing, and I think possibly the critical misjudgment that Johnson and his team made, is that there was a change in the rules under David Cameron. It was meant to be part of a big sweeping change of, of the British Constitution. In fact, it was just about the only big thing that got passed. So that now we have something approaching a fixed-term parliament. And for the previous century or so, you had to have an election within five years of the previous one, but the Prime Minister could go to the country earlier than that if they felt like it, which greatly increased the strength of incumbency. Thatcher and Blair were popular Prime Ministers and they went early rather than you know, get another mandate before doing something unpopular. That is no longer an option. Now you have to serve five years, and if you want to hold another election, you need 66.6% of the MPs. Labour has 38% of MPs. Labour is not totally united, but it's probably able to block any attempt at an election. As um, we don't have a precedent for what goes on under these new sets of rules, some people think that that the rest of Parliament can just say, Boris, you're stuck, you're there. You don't have a majority, but you're still in the job. I don't understand yes. why this is positive. I, I'm, I'm trying to struggle. <laughs> so there's no snap election. Uh, mm -hmm. They're going to block that. Yeah. But Boris Johnson basically doesn't have full authority or power to go forth with negotiations yes. or lack thereof. So this just makes the UK kind of hamstrung. I don't see how this gets them further away from a hard Brexit. It gets, oh, okay. It's positive because precisely as you said, Boris Johnson doesn't have as much authority as people thought he did. And they weren't happy about his having so much authority because they didn't trust his judgment. Um, more broadly, the market really dislikes the idea of no deal Brexit. We now know that we have a very strong majority in Parliament against it. And it looks thanks to the fact that Parliament has stronger power over deciding when an election happens than it used to, that they can insist that a no deal is ruled out before we even have an election. It is an ungodly mess, uh, to use my own term from my column this morning, uh, it, and the prospect for volatility is high, the prospect for good governance is very low. From the point of view of British assets, they have been priced on an increasing probability of no deal anything other anything other than no deal frankly they are amply priced for that risk and that risk swamps all other things so it doesn't make britain an attractive investment particularly but it does make it an appealingly priced investment 
All right, so give us your best guess as to next mm. steps. How does this play out? Are we, you know, as we get to October 31st? Well, <laughs> it's going to be very difficult. <laughs> I don't think I don't think there is a lot that Johnson himself can do about it at this point because his legs really have been cut from under him. They've basically overplayed their hand uh, and now they've you know, their bluff has been called. Now the question becomes, can the opposition to Brexit actually get its act together and agree on something, having failed to do so for the last three years? What's the deadline for Boris Johnson in terms of another election or when his tenure might be up, just naturally? 2022. Okay, so again, I'm not seeing how this resolves in any positive way. No, no, no. Gridlock doesn't necessarily. There is, there is no. I, I really, really cannot imagine he's going to be allowed to drag on for another three years. It might be moderately amusing. Uh, I, I, I know if Do Jacob Rees, so? Jacob Rees Mogg decides he's going to make a habit of lying across three seats with his yes, eyes closed. That. Uh, that 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 really could be quite amusing. You guys but, know how to do government better than we do. Yes, by the we way. do. My gosh. Yes, but but you did have a big revolution when you thought that you might have a better notion than we did. <laughs> so uh, there we go. Um, no, the, the in Hardcore terms of seventeen seventy six references. It, basically, this is purely the, the the market reaction at the moment, and the notion that this is positive is purely because um, people really people in in the investment community really think no deal is a bad idea and I personally do agree with them and no deal is not completely out of the question now there is still Nigel Farage out there one of the possibilities is that this completely burst, burst the Conservatives balloon and that the Brexit party becomes the biggest party when we finally have an election yeah but well. it, ultimately the ball is in the court of the anti-Brexiteers they have to work out uh, a, a way of doing things now that their bluff has been called for John Boris Johnson and the Brexiteers John Authors, thank you so much for being with us. It's always fabulous to get your perspective, especially on Brexit, which is, I, I, I just shrug, which doesn't really translate on, uh, <laughs> radio. on radio. Uh, John Authors is senior editor for Bloomberg Markets, joining us here in our Bloomberg Active Broker Studios. As the market kind of jogs around this range and doesn't really make a big move in one way or another, there is a question kind of hanging over uh, investment managers, which is when do they make a big move? When do they sort of dip their toe in or pull their money out? Joining us now, David Kotak, Chairman and Chief Investment Officer at Cumberland Advisors. He joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios. David, we love having you on. Thank you for being here. What are you doing at this point? Are you sitting on your hands like everybody says they are uh, in terms of real money investment? Uh, Lisa, it's always a pleasure. It's, uh, we've had a big change since the last time we talked. Uh, last week, we saw three rounds in our quantitative work on sentiment that was saying panic and fear is now rife in the markets. And that's appropriate when you see the kind of headline risk we've had day after day. We became nearly fully invested in the U.S. stock market in those sell-offs. So I sit here today and yesterday when I had my head handed to you, having just gone in the week before, it was looking pretty bleak. Today looks a little better. But the fact is we make the case three ways. 
Fiscal policy is expanding. That's a rising deficit. It's going to be over a trillion. That's a Trump deficit. Monetary policy is flat to easy. There isn't a chance interest rates go up in the United States for the next year. They go down or stay where they are. And the third one is the important one because the entire distribution of U.S. government debt is somewhere between, say, 1.5% and 2% interest rates. And the inflation rate in the United States is somewhere between one and a half and two percent. And if you put those together, that means the real interest rate in the United States is zero, which means money is free. Money free, loose monetary, loose fiscal, and 160 million people employed in the United States legally with wages. And it's the wages are rising. Show me how you get to a big recession. I don't see it. So I don't like the policy. I don't like the trade war. I think it does a disservice to the nation in the world. And I think Navarro Trump policy is wrong. I have to be agnostic on policy and apply as an investment professional what I think is the right choice. And that's what we did. Now we'll find out if it's good or bad, but it's we're in a new place here. Yeah. So, of course, what we've seen almost on a daily basis is the headline risk, which you talked about. And it kind of brings you back to what seems to be the number one driver of daily fluctuations in the, in the markets is the trade risk. So you, you, from your perspective, you just have to put that aside and think longer term, I guess? Well, I, we're, t we're evolving a different position on trade, Paul. It, it, we used to think about this as a temporary phenomenon, and the markets played that for a year and a half, and the politics of it seemed to suggest it. But what's really happened is I think what Trump and his policy have done is permanently set back globalization and integration, which was at work for decades. And the result of globalization and integration was a declining protectionist path, and we had it, and more or less growing peace, although we had hot spots. We are reversing that. It's a shame. What does it mean? It means we'll have enclaves geographically instead of globalization. So you take the U.S. and you take Canada and Mexico, put them together and say that's a North America enclave. You have another and it'll be China-centric. You have another and it'll be Europe, which is dealing now with this monstrosity of negative interest rates. But it's a separate enclave. And so for us, the focus then is on this new world. We are going through what I think is a hundred-year flood. And it's a major change. And if you try to play by the old rules, they don't work. A good example, if I have another minute, if you take negative rates, there's 17 trillion in negative rates. I know you follow that closely, and Lisa especially follows bonds she has for a long time. Oh, yeah. So you, so you say, okay, discount any asset with a negative interest rate, and the ultimate math says it's worth infinity. Now, we know that's not possible. So all bond models don't work. When the duration is longer than the maturity, the bond model doesn't work. When you discount assets at these interest rates, you get prices which change behavior extraordinarily. Okay, so all this kind of comes down to why you just shifted 
your money into equities. <laughs> Is that correct? You shifted that, well, that's the portfolio? right. We, we took up the weight in equities and we're fully invested. When the S&P 500 index yield is higher than the 10-year treasury. Would you buy the 10-year treasury with your money? My answer when that question comes to me is no. Okay, so. but then I guess the flip side of that is, do you think that, that bonds are gonna underperform given that relationship, or do you think that stocks just need to rally a whole bunch more to sort of right-size everything and then just returns will generally be lower going forward? I think bonds, underperform in price as yields get restored if we don't have a global recession or depression, if we don't repeat Smoot-Hawley. And in the mature economies and the U.S., which is 70% now services, it's not that likely. You can't make that case so strongly, or at least I can't. I hear it all the time. The world's coming to an end. Here's a Kotak forecast. The world won't come to an end. And if I'm wrong, you can tell me how wrong I am. <laughs> so, David, should we be, are you thinking, you know, what we've heard from some people is it is perhaps a new world order, um, less global perhaps, uh, but that suggests that global growth is going to be less going forward over the next 10, 20 years than perhaps it was over the prior periods. I think you're right. I think, uh, Paul, it, it, global growth slows because we have impediments to it now instead of assistance to it. You know, for me, this is tough. I spent my entire adult life in, in philanthropic work and in geopolitical work with organizations devoted to globalization and integration, attaining peace and a higher standard of living worldwide. And it's all coming apart. And the reason it's coming apart is a misguided policy that originates in Washington. Mm -hmm. That's awful. So it's hard as, it, it, on the policy, but I sit with my partners in the firm and I say, we don't make this policy. Our job is buy, yep. sell, hold for a client. And now we have an entry. And we have an entry because the world looks so ugly and crazy. Right. Right. Interesting. David Kotak, thank you so much, as always, uh, for your comments. <clears throat> now saying, I think, very interesting to take away, Lisa, uh, Mr. Kotak is fully invested in uh, equities using the recent volatility, the recent weakness in the markets to get uh, a little bit more aggressive on the equity side. I, I think that it's really poignant that he said that this is a 100-year flood, that this is uh, sort of turning a lot of fundamental assumptions on their heads. And what does that mean about how you look at investing and just in general, yep. how to color your perceptions? Really important outlook. Yeah, very, very. It's a different view, and it's uh, certainly one that uh, makes a lot of sense. And it's uh, it's probably, perhaps just kind of recognizing how the markets have changed out there. David Kotak, Chairman and Chief Investment Officer of Cumberland Advisors, thank you very much for joining us, giving us your thoughts on the market. The question heading into the September 18th FOMC meeting is not whether the Federal Reserve will cut rates, but whether they will signal substantial further cuts later in the year and next year. Joining us now to get a sense of what the pulse is in Fed world is Christopher Condon. He's Federal Reserve reporter for Bloomberg News. So, Chris, we are getting some Fed speak this week. We heard from Boston Fed President Eric Rosengren yesterday. We're going to hear from Jay Powell on Friday. What have we heard? What are we expecting to hear? 
Well, we're hearing more about a split committee, really. Uh, one, I think, where the majority still sits with Jay Powell uh, and his signal recently at Jackson Hole that there will be another rate cut coming in September. Um, but there's a, a good handful of regional presidents that are not comfortable with cutting again. Uh, a couple of them are voters, namely Eric Rosengren. Uh, Esther George from Kansas City will probably be another dissenter, although she hasn't spoken publicly since um, the last meeting. Uh, Rosengren has a couple of times, however, um, and he's making a case that, uh, yes, the risks are growing to the U.S. economy, obviously from the deteriorating trade picture, uh, but the damage there is confined mainly to the business sector, uh, to manufacturing especially, whereas the consumer, which counts for about 70% of GDP in the U.S., is uh, roaring on just fine because of a tight labor market and uh, steadily increasing wages, not dramatically, but steadily. And so the consumer is continuing to spend, and the consumer has the ability to carry the U.S. economy to at least a 2% growth this year. Yeah, so Christopher, you mentioned uh, manufacturing and, and, and business spending, and we saw that uh, uh, the ISM data came out uh, last week, which showed manufacturing contracting for the first time, I guess, in uh, three That's years right. with a 49.1 reading below that mad, uh, the important 50 level. So to what extent do you think that'll give the Hawks uh, some ammunition? Um yeah, I think it certainly will. But, you know, it, there's a lot of agreement on, I would say, the diagnosis and not the prescription here. Um, across the, the committee, people seem to agree that the base case is still pretty good um, and that the risks are rising. The question is, does all this turmoil and the business side, particularly in manufacturing, begin to infect the consumer side? And the bridge there is the jobs market. That's what a lot of people are going to be watching. We've got a big jobs number coming on Friday, the August non-farm payrolls. And, the, you know, the idea is if um, businesses, which are already drawing back on plans for expansion, you know, delaying or even just canceling investment plans, if they also begin to lay off workers, and that gives us one or two bad jobs numbers, that could spook the consumer. Rob Kaplan, the president of the Dallas Fed, talked about that. He's, he's supportive of a rate cut in September, and he worries that if the FOMC waits to see a real sign that consumer spending is starting to nose down, then they've waited a bit too long. Does the data even matter at this point? Oh, well, that always matters, I think, Lisa. Well, but, but, but the reason why I ask that is because at this point, it seems like uncertainty is the prevailing word. They're worried about uncertainty, creating some uncertainty for uncertainty at businesses <laughs> with uncertainty. And, you know, that basically it's going to slow spending and that they just want to get ahead of that. I mean, it does not seem to be connected to, you know, maybe perhaps the inflation readings. But, I mean, it doesn't seem like anything could come out of the jobs report on Friday that would make them not cut rates this month. Oh, I agree with that. Yes. Yeah. I mean, in a short, and you always, you know, you're not going to get a dramatic move one way or the other based on one or two data points. It's more of the accumulation. So in that sense, I really do agree with you that they're, they're going to cut in September. Um, but, you know, there's a bigger decision waiting for this committee, is, and that's at what point do they switch, even the majority that's in favor of this mid-cycle adjustment, what point do they change gears and say, no, we're headed for a deeper downturn and we better start cutting 
harder. That's where the argument of trying to use your limited uh, ammunition fast and aggressively starts to come into play. They are not there yet, but you know they, they're thinking about that, and the, and the data as it accumulates will help inform them there for sure. So, Chris, just real quickly, um, how common is it to have you know the number of dissenters that we seem to have on the FOMC right now? Uh, I would say it's not uncommon, particularly where it's confined to the regional presidents. Um, you, you'll only have, uh, you know, the potential for two dissenting voters there again, uh, where in the background, too, there'll be some other, uh, uh, th- probably, I would say, three or four other regional presidents yep. that afterwards come out saying they weren't really comfortable with this. Uh, it gets a lot more dramatic if we eventually see a governor right. um, expressing severe discomfort, we're not quite there. So I I don't think it's that highly unusual at this point. Very good. Christopher Condon, thank you so much for joining us. Chris is the Federal Reserve reporter for Bloomberg News, joining us from our Washington, D.C. Bureau. Let's talk cryptocurrencies. Facebook made a big uh, splash uh, a month or so ago with their Libra product, their cryptocurrency entrance into the market. Let's get an update on kind of where that market stands. We welcome William Quigley. He's CEO of WAX Worldwide Asset Exchange. He's also co-founder of Tether. Uh, He joins us from our LA studio. William, thanks so much for joining us. You know, I guess cryptocurrencies for the broad audience kind of took a, a higher profile when Facebook made that announcement about its Libra crypto product. Give us give us a sense of kind of where you think the cryptocurrency market is uh, right now. First, I would say uh, the, the fact that Facebook is finally considering doing what we call a stable coin, which is issuing a token that's backed by the US dollar and, and a basket of other goods, is a, is a strong indication that companies of that size finally realize the value of incorporating blockchain into their basic business. So there's a lot of other reasons why, why uh, Facebook is, is doing a, what we call a stable coin other than simply saving money. Uh, the entire uh, cross-border international payment uh, business is very difficult, it's slow, it's expensive. And when you think about somebody like Facebook, they've got 2 billion people on their platform. They could instantly create a, a currency, if you will, that would be one of the biggest, if not the biggest in the world. So this is, it's a very good use case, uh, what we call stable coins, uh, for, for blockchain. Blockchain is not perfect for everything. Now, in terms of uh, your question, what is the state of, of blockchain today? Uh, there has been a ton of investment since 2017. Back in 2017, hundreds of, of businesses did what we called ICOs. They raised lots of capital, and they've been building out really nice software systems. So we're going way beyond blockchain from the Bitcoin perspective. Bitcoin is a, is a fantastic invention, but it lacks a lot of things. You know, it's slow, it's expensive, and it's difficult to use. So those particular problems are things that are now getting addressed. And I'd suspect over the second, maybe the next year or so, you're going to see a lot more businesses adopting 
crypto, and you're going to see them using these new types of blockchains that go way beyond the capabilities of, of the Bitcoin blockchain. So the concept of a stable coin, and this is important, and you're the perfect person to be speaking about this because you're a co-founder of Tether, which is the mm -hmm. stable coin probably that people most know. Uh, and my understanding, it's basically backed by some currency or some commodity or there's something backing the value so it's not just uh you know its own kind of entity that that rises or falls yes. based on speculation am i correct that's exactly right so i, I guess that there's there's a question and this really gets kind of dicey sometimes what would you like to see when it comes to the regulatory regime that oversees whether the the, the stuff that's backing the currency is actually worth what it is i mean i'm, I'm talking i'm thinking about tether there have been some questions about whether there are enough dollars backing it or, or just sort of you know whether there's any you know demonstration that they're all backed yep. by by dollars yeah, well, first I would say uh, uh, whether or not Tether was backed by a dollar or not actually wouldn't matter if everybody agreed to take Tether and to value it at a dollar themselves. And that's actually what's happened. There was some controversy about some cash, I think it was about $850 million, that uh, Tether was unable to access because that bank account had been frozen, not due to anything they had done. And, and yet the price of Tether continued to trade at just about a dollar. So I think a lot of people want it to be uh, backed and they, and they would prefer it to be backed, but what's even more important is that people will exchange it for the value of a dollar. And uh, to give you a sense of what I would like to see, uh, it is almost impossible to get a bank account if you are a blockchain-based business, whether that's Tether or Wax or any number of other businesses. It's very difficult. And yet there is no legislation that says it should be difficult. In fact, usually people talk about um, money laundering and tax evasion and, and knowing your customer rules. The thing is, blockchains can be designed to provide those things in an even easier way than traditional bank wires and payments. So what I'd like to see, but I'm not holding my breath, is Congress gives some guidance to the regulators. And the problem right now is no regulator in the United States anyway has been assigned to have jurisdiction over blockchain and crypto. And as a result, you have many, many regulators all saying, well, it's, it's our turf. And as a result, if you're in the blockchain business, you are really forced to comply with numerous regulators. And there's many conflicting uh, interpretations of what is a crypto, how blockchain works, what rules you have to follow. And keep in mind, blockchain is not just the United States phenomenon. In fact, the U.S. is relatively small. It is a, it is a global phenomenon. And therefore, any business operating in blockchain is really a global business. Now, that's one reason why, of course, I think Facebook sees the benefit. They've got 2 billion people. Most of those people on their platform are outside of the United States. And Facebook clearly has seen it needs to move away from simply advertising as its revenue model. And what the do you reason, think, of course. Yeah, and what do you think the business case is for Facebook with Libra? Well, I will first just say it's a fantastic idea for them to do. <laughs> I, and I hope they take a lot of the learnings that we've done from, from Tether and incorporate them. But consider that... Uh, most of the of the platforms today, social media platforms, are really ad supported 
And with all of the privacy concerns and, and just concerns about advertising in general, it's pretty difficult to imagine Facebook's going to be able to continue to grow with that as its primary revenue model. They need to get into commerce. I think they're actually late to the game. They bought a business, I wouldn't want to say about five or six years ago, called WhatsApp. WhatsApp is a, is a messaging app. Five, six hundred million people globally use it. In Asia, those messaging apps, other than WhatsApp, have tons of commerce integrated into them. You want to order food, you want to order a car, you want to book an Airbnb-like experience, you do it through that app. So I've been quite surprised that Facebook has been so slow to exploit that on its, on its uh, WhatsApp platform. But this is really about e-commerce, global e-commerce. And the biggest friction point in global e-commerce is the payment mechanism because it is so complicated and there are so many individual entities that take a piece of every transaction and it's slow. Yeah. William Quigley, thank you so much for being with us. A really interesting uh, discussion. William Quigley is Chief Executive Officer of WAX, the Worldwide Asset Exchange. He also is co-founder of Tether, which is probably the best-known stablecoin, one of the most popular uh, crypto assets, which is uh, tethered to the value of the dollar. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.